Most of what you recommended has been proposed by moderate Democrats like Barack Obama, yet these ideas are blocked at every term by a party that can only chant tax cuts. What is to be done in this country? Well, I mean, I, my sense is that that the Democrats say we're arguing for this, but all it is is another substitute for statism. And I think that, I mean, on the Republican side, you had Ronald Reagan's private sector initiative, you had George Bush's ones, you know, Thousand Points of Light, you had George Bush's two, Compassionate Conservatism, and the Faith-Based Projects Initiative. And, and they all largely failed because the, the delivery vehicle was the state, and they all became state-dependent vehicles. And I, and I think that when Democrats tend to, to argue that, that they're arguing for this, in effect, it's that. In effect, it's something that is just another delivery mechanism by the state. And I think the idea that we're arguing for here is, is genuine takeover, genuine plurality, genuine power accruing to the citizens themselves and to, to free association. And I think if we did that, that would be different both to what uh, the standard left and the standard right are offering. Because normally when you deliver via the state, particularly if you deliver by the state in, in, um, in this country, the state says everything has to be standardized, has to be delivered in the same way. The radical move is to say, that actually we're indifferent to process, we don't care how you do it, as long as what we need done is done. And it's that sort of approach that will allow for the first time radical innovation, and allow genuine local ownership. And I don't think that move's really been taken by any party. And I think that the localism bill currently going through the UK Parliament is in many ways the most radical bit of legislation we've seen in respect of that. I'm uh, grouping a couple of questions uh, together um, that at first glance seem to go. Uh, here, are, here are two. One is, what is to stop local authorities from committing a high level of corruption, incompetence, and nepotism, as is the case for any number of UK councils, or for that matter, extreme policies being adopted by many regional subcultures, and then a second how will the localized community associations you spoke of work? Um, would, would they control, what, in other words, assets, etc., etc.? I think that maybe if you could address how they work and how do they, how would you avoid corruption on the local level, and what's different about that than national corruption? Well, I mean, you already have corruption on the local level. I mean, it, you already have the failures of the state on the local and the national level. Um, and I think the idea that if things go more local, they go more corrupt, I think is very questionable, not least with modern technology. I think what you do want to, to uh, ensure against is any local kind of self-constituted neighbourhood being taken over by one group or one vested interest. I think that's perfectly correct. But I think it's equally easy to set up um, formats and measures that mitigate against that. Modern technology, I think, is oddly pro-social. I mean, via television, it was a hugely um, isolating, atomizing phenomenon. But I think sort of using new technology, you can actually make budgets transparent and make it very clear where the money is being spent. So actually, I think, 
by making it more local, you can actually increase the number of auditors because it's more present and people will be able to see if things are delivered or not. And so paradoxically, I think a new form of locality using new technology will be a better guard uh, than hitherto for against that type of capture. In a sense, I guess you say if the banker is ripping you off and his kids play soccer with yours, um, you can meet him after the game and look him in the eye and tell him. I think there's something to that. Or if you say we're, we're um, building a road and the road isn't built, you know, or, or, we're, or we're repairing the roof and the roof isn't repaired. But it's very difficult uh, once you get to too large a level for people to check that or for people even to know what's going on. I mean, one of the th interesting things, if you increase increase uh, participation for budgets, you actually generally tend to increase uh, voting for projects, for, for projects that people want to do. So actually, I think greater voter greater local engagement is the key to actually delivering many of these services and delivering them in a far better way. Um. There are a couple of questions about health care, and that's a huge issue in this country. Um, one wants to talk about consumer-oriented health care, especially health savings accounts, and the other uh, wants to know, do you agree with universal health care, the idea in general for America? And coming from a country that has universal health care, um, it would be interesting to hear. Well, I think, first of all, you need to say there's something profoundly wrong with how you deliver health care in, in the United States. I think it's approaching 18% of your uh, GDP. It's insane. Completely insane. In Britain, it's like 9%. France, it's a little bit more, but not much more. So you've got a hugely expensive system that's ineffective if you look at infant mortality rates. In the US, I think you've got some of the highest infant mortality rates in the developed world. So you certainly need a universal uh, healthcare system, I think. But what I don't think you should have is a universal entitlement health system. I think the most successful one is actually the French, where you have the notion of co-payment. It's co-payment that influences and limits demand. And the only really key to effective healthcare is where the, the, the patient themselves limit their demand in respect of healthcare. Because that's the only thing that can start to eliminate cost and introduce a genuine uh, market mechanism that actually works. And the French have that, and they're the best healthcare system in the world. So that's really the way I would pursue it. Uh, what, what is the advantage, in your opinion, of the French healthcare system over, say, the German healthcare system, which I have heard a number of proponents of as well? Well, I think that the, the simple principle is, is that if you just have entitlement, you start to build in huge inefficiencies within a system. And I don't care how you get the reciprocal principle in there, as long as the reciprocal principle is in there. And that reciprocal principle is that you have to pay a portion of those costs in order to limit those costs and limit your demand. And I think that's the key. And insofar as that reciprocal principle is present, I think you'll get a, an effective healthcare system. Okay. Um, <clears throat> three questions here that somewhat grew. Uh, with so much corruption, within our political system. How do we begin to instill this new philosophy? And um, actually, let's just take that one on. Well, I think your political system isn't that corrupt in the sense of the politicians themselves. I don't think many of your politicians, you know, it's not in the 30%. Maybe, 
you know, most congressmen are not corrupt. It's like most MPs are not corrupt. It's the system that corrupts them. And, and it's your Supreme Court that's opened up your system to the most extreme manipulation. So most congressmen and, and women are decent people, but they can't step outside of the tram lines, because if they do, they get somebody throwing a million or two million in a primary to stand against them. It's actually your Supreme Court that has opened up your political system to be bought and sold. It's your political system that's corrupt, not necessarily the agency, the people within them. Actually, in my experience, most MPs, most politicians are decent people who could earn more money elsewhere, but want to make a difference. I think we lose sight of that if we start saying our oh, politicians are corrupt, we become cynical, we become passive. And that's the final victory for everything that everybody wants to oppose. So I think your campaign financing reforms are, ins are insane. And the way in which you let uh, vested interest buy out any other interest means in some ways you've got the most corrupted political system in the developed world. But it's not the people. Um. We're going to resistance there, just silent acquiescence. Yeah, that's kind of how it is. We're probably going to get to most, if not all, of these questions. But uh, i got to push this one in because um, we're at a university. And I want to, uh, this, this, this question triggers a second question for me. What role should the education system play in your vision? And can the current system do this, number one? Number two, <coughs> Um, we have uh, some huge funding issues with our educational system um, in terms of tuition, uh, incredible tuition hikes, and at the same time, increase or, or massive decreases in community, state, government support of education over here. Uh, and this is a state university that theoretically is supported by. Well, I think everything is, is, is increasingly becoming unsustainable. I sometimes get the sense that the, the, the models everybody's adopted are at the most extreme end of the probability curve. And once some sort of minor kind of factors change, the whole system itself rapidly becomes unsustainable, like long-term curve. I think, first of all, the role of the educational system is problematic, isn't it? Because I tend to think that our university systems are now institutions of sophistry. They're just taking people uh, who kind of want knowledge and they turn out people who are uncertain about almost everything. And so we, we, we create sort of institutions of sophistry rather than institutions of principle. Now what's interesting, and I think most, most lecturers in the humanities would not consider themselves relativists, but they turn out students who consider themselves relativists. And what that means is you're not able as a nation to create norms you don't think creating norms are possible, and you don't have norms. And the most damaging thing, I think, in modern America is the fact that you as a country can't create new normative structures, can't create values or principles that you all agree with and all abide by. And if you as a nation can't do that, then you as a nation can't operate. Because nations can only operate if they differ around themes that they most agree on, if you will. And that's the only way you can operate globally, and it's the only way you can create a society where everybody does well. And I think it's the destruction of American norms by this sort of liberalism that's created a situation where it's impossible for you to rescue the poor from their lot, it's impossible for you to defend families, it's impossible for you to defend almost anything you would want to defend. 
So in that sense, I think the most important thing for American educational institutions is re-establish principles. Because we now live in a situation, I think, in America where nobody is allowed to really have principles. And we've got to restore leadership in our schools and in almost every sphere that we could think of, the people who lead by that. When you don't have publicly shared principles, what you have is increasingly nutty people with privatized principles who claim to represent you. So that's why all your representatives, particularly in the cultural media, are so extreme. Because they are, are become your sole bearers. They have, if you like, privatized their own particular take, their sub-Russo, but it's still within that, that tradition. As for the American tuition system, I was reading a piece this morning that actually it's approaching delinquency and bankruptcy because so many people aren't repaying their loans. And I think you're in a situation again where there's got to be more market options. What's interesting is you have lots of private sector options, but everything seems expensive. And I think what has to be is, is more supply-side reforms in the sense that you need excellence with kind of lower budgetary buy-in. I think the only solution for this is shorter degrees. Shorter degrees that people take for a shorter period of time, but then do the rest of their degree when they're in a job and when they're in um, the type of training and experts that they want to argue for. So, for instance, one of the ideas I haven't written about it yet, but it's a policy idea I had, is creating in Britain, for example, two-year degrees, but then you do your master's and your third year of your degree when you specialise. Because if you look at most students, they come out, they overly specialise, and they do not stay within the field in which they uh, did their specialism in. Then, further along the line, when they could really benefit from university education, when employers would be prepared to subsidise it, they actually, it's not there for them as an option. And I think if we break degrees down into two parts and have the idea that when you come out and you're, and you're 20, you're fully rounded with a liberal arts education, and you specialise in your late 20s or your 30s, your employer would be prepared to contribute more because your skills would be directly applicable to them, so it would cost you less. You yourselves would uh, generate less cost because it's less time in education, it's a decade you're not funding it uh, in terms of interest payments. And also the country would benefit more because the skill specialisation you were following would be specifically relevant to your industry. So to sum up, I would split up your degrees into like a BA level of two years, then an honours level, which moves into a master's level. And I would create graduate institutions, the second part of lifelong learning, and I would have undergraduate institutions that were dedicated on producing, as I say, people who weren't terrified of maths and could do a critical argument. That's more structural as a response, but I think we can't any longer be in the situation we're in at the moment where we're spending enormous sums of money turning out people who aren't properly equipped in respect to the jobs market, or properly equipped in terms of values and principles. <coughs> I appreciate that's controversial. At, at the risk of possibly adding a rabbit trail of my own, um, there are a lot of uh, proposals to do things like that, and there's a certain uh, push to find marketable educational skills. And yet, um, I'm a firm believer, and many of my colleagues here, that the humanities themselves create the kinds of people that actually think better and work. Could you, could you I think, I think, I think it's very, I mean, Google, the chap from Google said exactly this. We, we still live in a, in a world where we're governed by politicians who think English or history or philosophy or theology aren't valuable. But 
They're the only degrees that can teach you how to argue. They're the only degrees that can teach you how to think critically. Because science uh, doesn't get critical until a much later stage. And at the moment, all you've been taught really is determinative laws and perhaps interpretations of it. And we need both, and we need to create. One of the great lacks in, in kind of people who come out of US, UK institutions is teamwork, critical thinking, ability to argue, ability to problem solve, and ability to think through. And that only comes from the humanities. And I think that we need to bring together humanities and science education in a holistic environment because human beings need both sets of skills. Um, there, are, there are two here. One. Just like being on a quiz show with cards. <laughs> quite old. Yeah. I'm quite used to this, but we've got this. is your life. <laughs> yeah, there'll be a buzzer here at some yeah. point. Uh, one is do you see any correlation in the social inequality and in the health of society? And I think you've addressed that, but you might just. And then a question that probably rattles around in a lot of people's minds, particularly since you are arguing for a, a, a distributist kind of philosophy. Is communism a viable option? No. <laughs> I can leave it there, I think. I mean, yeah. Distributism um, has nothing to do with communism. In communism, uh, the state dispossesses you. In the wrong sort of capitalism, the capitalist dispossesses you. What we want is a popular form of capitalism that distributes ownership uh, and entrepreneurship <coughs> to all, which is very different, I think, to either system. And I think that the inequality and in health of society is pretty much what your talk was about when the top 1% uh, of... Well, what, what I think, is, I, I'm not that bothered about inequality in the sense that I think that we need it in order to have excellence. And I think attempts to produce an egalitarian society only lead to inequality of terror. But I think more importantly, that the very idea of equality is incoherent. Uh, because if you say I want equality, you have to say equality about what? Good looks, height, weight, locality, fashion, outcome, income. So the point is, is any politics of equality relies on a non-egalitarian decision about what you're going to be equal about. So you need a hierarchical politics, better, worse, good over evil before you can have an egalitarian politics. So the idea of an egalitarian politics by itself is contradictory. It can't move ahead, it can't work, because it can't decide what you will distribute under a principle of distributive justice. And so I think equality is a tertiary good. And actually I also think that if you actually want things to improve, you can't do it by equality, you can only do it by equity, you can only do it by a notion of what you put in, you get out. And I think if you do that, and I think the research showed that that's most people's concept of fairness, what you actually paradoxically get is a far better outcome. I mean, if we all had the same houses, you create a society where everyone has exactly the same house, and then you create a society where people can innovate about the type of houses they want. In 20 years, you want to be in the type of society where people can innovate about what type of houses they, they live in. I think, I think that's kind of clear. So equality doesn't even make people equal. Um, why not increase marginal tax rates, spend more on education, infrastructure, and healthcare? Uh, I think that the whole taxation thing is misplaced. 
because I think that you create a system, if you create a system that penalises too many people, you create a system where too few people pay tax. I think it's much cleverer to create a very broad-based but low-tax uh, revenue. You would raise more money, more people would include it, be less incentive to gain the system, but a much more plural tax basis. But I also think we should tax, this is the radical part, we should tax unearned wealth far more than we do. Because unless we tax unearned wealth far more than we do, we tax income far too much and unearned wealth far too little. You create a situation in which those who work can never, ever, ever, ever get ahead. And those who don't work are always ahead and always will remain so. And that will create a class and caste-based society. Also, if you tax unearned wealth more, you can then have less tax on wealth that's deployed productively in the company and starting businesses and investing in businesses. And then you move wealth from a merely speculative activity where you try to create, for instance, price volatility and gain the outcome, which is all investment sort of is in, in equities markets at, at a certain point, and actually create real investment in the real economy. The, there's another follow-up <clears throat> question. One of America's, this is a, obviously a partisan question, two political parties has lurched into libertarianism. We wonder which one. Uh, that there is the no public, public good, only private goods, or that the only public good is the protection of private goods, and that there is no uh, appeal from the judgment to the judgment of the markets. In other words, okay. the Chicago School. Okay, both parties are libertarian. Let's be very clear. The left is socially libertarian. You know, they're both carriers of this of this virus, and the left is socially libertarian because. What it wants is the state to create maximum autonomy for our social and sexual decisions. So the left is just as libertarian as the right, and it's the same project once more. And the point is, is libertarian can't even deliver on its own principles. Liberty by itself produces tyranny. Why? Because if you create a society on the left where you invade against family, against taboo, against religion, against code, if you argue for unrestrained sexual pursuit of your own best interests, you'll create a society that can't foster its children, that can't create virtue in public life, that creates a society where relationships aren't possible. The society where relationships aren't possible is living hell for those who aren't wealthy. And those who aren't wealthy aren't wealthy often because they're following libertarian dictums in their economic life. So all you will do by a libertarian society is create an anarchy that then a leviathan will step up and control, which is Hobbes's point. All libertarianism will do will produce anarchy that will produce the state, which will then produce authoritarianism, which then will be the end of liberty. So just as equality can't make things equal, neither can liberty produce, neither can liberalism or libertarianism produce liberty. The real key is fraternity, and it's only by fraternity you approximate equality or indeed liberty. I think I answered that. <laughs> the, there's a question about the population explosion. Um, will this not only burden nations and their markets, but also increase poverty level, decrease assets? I think this is modern Malthusian nonsense. 
I don't know if anyone's ever been to Australia. They've got about 12 people in it, and it's, it's bigger than the world. And they're terrified of immigration. Completely insane nonsense. And it's, it's, um, and you know, the state of Michigan is shockingly the size of England. And then the population, what's the population of Michigan? About 10 million. Sorry? About 10 million. There's about 70 million in England. And we've got more countryside. Go figure. <laughs> you guys have, have let your wonderful state be just dominated by urban sprawl, where it just spreads out everywhere <coughs> and sort of destroys any sense of locality and focus. In our country, we have beautiful, beautiful countryside. I would argue for three months of the year, the most beautiful countryside in the world. Nine months of the year, probably best to leave. But the point is, is that um, this stuff about population is just nonsense. Um, it's only, you only create stress conditions if your conditions of production or consumption are wildly skewed. And I think there's more than enough both resources on this earth and all this stuff about finite resources is highly problematic, actually, because um, not only are resources, in some sense, not finite, in the sense that human beings can always adapt around new norms and new, new models, but also it underlies it a great sort of left-wing green misanthropy that really rather wishes there weren't human beings at all, uh, and then things would be so much better. I really don't like this line of thinking. Um, there's a question about globalization, about uh, how can you, um, uh, is it uh, conceivable that generalized property can be restored in America uh, now that we confront competition from Southeast Asia? Um, the, 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 only way, the only way you can confront competition from Southeast Asia is through property. Property does give you liberty. And the point is, you've already created a situation where the bottom third of your population is unproductive. God knows what you're going to do when it's at 50%, because you still have to cover them. I was chatting with colleagues and friends beforehand, and they were saying even in this state that we'd be on 99 weeks to third week, uh, third year of uh, income supplement. The great disaster of modern welfareism is separating production and consumption. You've created you know, what Marx called the reserve army of labor that you have to permanently finance. That really, if you engaged in it in productivity, if you had a something for something welfare that was genuine rather than just enslavement, but was actually about productivity, you'd change the life outcomes of these people in your community quite, quite radically. There are two questions that... Um... We're going through them quite quickly. I'm quite happy to take, I can talk, I'm quite happy you know, if you're brave enough to ask, ask the question. Well, I have a question I'm, here. I'm cowardly enough to answer. Constitutional, federal system of constitutional powers reserved for states. Um, and I, I didn't know if you wanted to try to wade into a constitutional Sure, question. sure, sure. Okay, how does a federal system <laughs> and constitutional powers reserved for states create um, implementation variances from a unit I'll talk about the Constitution. There's Duracell batteries on here. I don't know what that means. But anyway, um, what's interesting about America is your system is really, really problematic. Um, and I think that's because you've got a revolutionary French system of governments that no longer works. 
So every level, you're, because you no longer have norms, because you don't have a place or side where you can articulate universal American norms, your system of checks and balances is now becoming a system that can't deliver. Because everybody now vetoes everybody else, and this goes down throughout the system. Even the president probably feels powerless, let alone anybody else. And all the politicians I speak to said, oh, well, we could do something, but be vetoed by a governor, be vetoed at the council, be vetoed by somebody else. And this all comes from, actually, you need to be far more British than you are French. Because what you need to do is recreate the Burkean um, vision that actually universals are formed by particulars, and you only access universals by particulars. Whereas you have the French vision that there has to be universals. And since none of you think there are universals, nothing can work. And, and, and the system is a lock. And you've now created an economic, a political system that cannot save you. Okay, so a political system that can't innovate, it can't deliver on your economy, and it can't deliver on your society. Profoundly broken. Now, I think that the only way to recover that <coughs> is to start to rethink localism and rethink what localism might mean. And if we could build new forms of identity and commonality at very local levels, you could start to solve problems at that position, and that could gradually work its way up through the system, certainly to state level. And then if you're at state level, and if you use the sort of arguments we've deployed, states could become a lot more economically powerful, then you really could change everything. And then at state level, since you're as big as my country, we can solve problems, we create, we, elect, we have a political system that allows people to lead. We have a political system that allows genuine majority governance. But you've got a political system where minorities veto majorities, where you don't even create majorities. And, and leaving aside the fact that people can buy it, but that's another issue, it's profoundly broken. And so I think that the only way you can renew that is through a new form of localism, about which we can talk more later. Well, you may be able to talk about it now. Uh, the ideas seem good, that's but how do you? <laughs> that's, that's like the uh, statement that always starts with all due respect. I don't have any girlfriend <laughs> yeah. to say that to me. It doesn't lead anywhere good in the next two sentences. Anyway, go on. The ideas seem good, but how do you propose making these changes? The current government is comprised of the rich. Why would they want to change the world? Again, I don't think the government is comprised of the rich. Again, when I meet politicians, I don't get the feeling I'm meeting corrupt people. I get the feeling I'm meeting good people who want to make a difference, who are very ideological, yes, but often not. I mean, when I meet politicians, I tend to think politicians are very moral, very good people. I, I do. And they've got, they've, they've, there's a book, I forget who wrote it, some French guy. Um, and it's talked about the sort of, in some sense, politicians are the modern moral figures, because they're always trying to broker a compromise around a moral good. I tend to think that's true. Um, but what, they, what they're in is they're in a system. You've got checks and balances that's a bonkers system. It doesn't work. It's predicated from, on an English value system, but a French process. And now you don't have the original English value system. You've just got the French process. Doesn't, doesn't deliver you agreement. And you've got a system that's bought out at the highest level by vested interests. That's what's corrupt. I'm sorry to repeat it, but I don't think individual American politicians are corrupt. I, I find the reverse. I find that good people deeply frustrated, deeply upset, 
deeply pessimistic about their ability to deliver change because uh, everything's bought. I'm happy to take, if anyone's got any other questions, modern music, M&M, <laughs> to ask, I'd be, happy, I'd be happy to take questions. The, the, the final question... Oh, sorry. You're not done yet. The final question was about how to break gridlock, uh, and I think maybe if you could offer some final thoughts. Uh, we're heading towards the 9 o'clock close time when they're going to come chase us out of the auditorium here. Um, the, if I was in America, and I'm not, um, but if I was, what would I do if I was a patriot, if I loved my country, if I thought that this was a, a place that needed saving? And I believe in America, by the way, I believe in the West, and I think, I think you can't save the West unless you save America and save Britain. I think the keystones of the West are the US and the UK. So I'm profoundly committed to that. I would just try to create common value. You know, the culture wars have destroyed America. Americans now think they can't agree, and Americans think, think agreeing is some form of betrayal of democracy, and that democracy is some permanent act of sophistry. And I'm always reminded of what happened in Europe. And what happened in Europe is all politics became about ideology. And in the 1930s, when all politics was about ideology, there was no good beyond politics. And consequently, left and right clashed, and national socialism won. And so if I was an American, I would try to think what on earth could be a basis for creating a good beyond politics around which we can associate and build common value. That's what I would do. Thank you very much.